You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Dismantling Roe by Ankar Gatte. On Thursday, June 23rd, the Supreme Court tossed out a New York state law that it said violated the individual's right to keep and bear a handgun. The next day, the Supreme Court said, you can take this gun, point it at the head of a pregnant woman, and force her to carry a pregnancy to term. And to add insult to profound injury, it said that this is what fidelity to the US Constitution demands. The Dobbs majority opinion starts with the claim that abortion presents a profound moral issue. This is not true. It is not true in the sense that they mean. So it may be true for some people who are influenced by religion and who've come to believe that destroying an embryo or a fetus is to sin against God. But it's not true for everyone. The decision to have a child certainly is a profound moral issue, and it's deserving of careful reflection. But if a woman or a couple decide that they don't want to have a child, terminating a pregnancy in its early stages and which, of course, is the, the stage at which most, I mean, the vast majority of abortions in the U.S. occur. That decision is not fraught with moral anxiety, as though you're sinning against God. Rather, it's a decision that is part of and constitutes the pursuit of happiness for the woman or for the couple. So... I'd put it this way, very strongly. There is no abortion problem in a free society. There just isn't. There is no abortion problem in a free society. You may have seen some of the uh, signs at the protests or rallies that are going on. And this is one fairly common sign that I think captures the issue completely. If you're against abortion, don't have one. But the idea that you have the power, or somehow the US Constitution grants you the power, that you have a right to force a woman to carry a pregnancy to term, is a perversion of liberty and is a perversion of the understanding and a proper understanding of the US Constitution. But this is not the way that the court looks at it now. This is from the Dobbs majority decision, and they're quoting Scalia from a dissent in a previous abortion case. So they're quoting him now approvingly. This is from the decision. The permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved like most important questions in our democracy by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting That is what the Constitution and the rule of law demand. 
Now, that is not what the Constitution or the rule of law demand. So it certainly includes the possibility and the potentiality that you can try to persuade other people. But you try to persuade other people, and then you go your separate ways if you don't succeed. That's what the Constitution and the rule of law demand. It's not that you go to the ballot box and try to force your opinions down someone else's throat, and they're supposed to be doing the same. And yet that is what the majority opinion is telling us now. This is what the Constitution means. This is what the rule of law means. In a free society, yes, you can try to persuade other people. You can even shout your head off that you think what they're doing is wrong. They shouldn't be doing it. But you have to then allow the other person to go their separate way. You have to allow the pregnant woman to go her separate way. And if the objection is, yeah, but the fetus goes with her, that's the point. You don't have a separate being or a separate entity that could have rights or interests of its own. So in a free society, yes, you can try to persuade other people, but then you go your separate way. And that is what the court is now telling us. No, that is not what America is about. That is not what our Constitution is about. So what I want to talk about uh, for the next little bit is how we got here. How was Roe, the Roe v. Wade decision, dismantled? Um, and that is the, I mean, it's obviously the target of the Dobbs decision, of the recent Supreme Court decision, and you can put it a little more broadly. Like, there's three, there's more, but there's three really important uh, Supreme Court decisions on abortion. Roe v. Wade, which is 1973, Casey, it's Planned Parenthood versus Casey, it's always referred to Casey, in 1992, and now the Dobbs decision. And the Dobbs decision is saying we're overturning both Roe and Casey, but Roe is the much more important decision, so that's what they focus on, and that's what I will focus on. And the Roe decision, as modern Supreme Court decisions go, is a good decision. It's not a great decision, but it's a good decision. And that is what they're dismantling. That is their target, and that is what they've overturned. And it's a good decision because central to the decision is that a woman does have a right to an abortion. She does have a right to end a pregnancy if she so chooses. And they treat this in the decision as it is a fundamental issue, it is a fundamental right. They treat it as a fundamental right and a second important issue, and I'll come back to this at the end of the talk, a second important issue is they discuss the issue of whether a fetus is a person from the perspective of the law and from the perspective of the Constitution, and their answer is no. They have an analysis of it, and they have, the answer is no. The fetus is not a separate person with rights of its own. And there's a lot of caricature of Roe that it tries to find a right to abortion in some made-up right to privacy, there's something to that criticism, but stated like that, it's false. It is not true that they just conjure up a right to privacy, connect abortion to it, and say, lo and behold, we found this in the Constitution. They connect it to the issue of liberty, which is in the Constitution. 
both in the preamble that the Constitution exists to secure the blessings of liberty and in amendments such as the 14th Amendment, which is what the Roe decision focuses on. So the best aspect of the decision is it takes seriously the issue of abortion, why it, is a, it represents a woman having fundamental control of her own life, and that that is part of liberty. And it rejects the idea that a fetus is a person. Now, the bad aspect of the decision is that's not the end of the story. No, it's, well, yes, a woman has a right to abortion, but the state also has some interest of its own. And this is how you get to the, the that you get a pregnancy divided into trimesters. This is the reasoning behind it of what leads to it. So it, they say, well, there's a, the state has an interest in medical standards, maintaining proper or good medical standards, and an interest in the woman's health. This is, in effect, a paternalistic viewpoint. It's that in the early stages of pregnancy, you can leave it up to the woman or the woman and her doctor to make a decision. Once you get to the second stage, it's um, abortion becomes a riskier medical procedure, and, the, and because it's a riskier medical procedure, it's supposedly the state can then enter and regulate and control this procedure, and it has an interest that the woman, um, is, her, her medical care is good, and the doctor and the woman by themselves might be too stupid, too ignorant of what is a proper procedure, does this have to happen in the hospital or not. So the state takes that over. So it's a very paternalistic view that later in the pregnancy that can happen. But that's not the only state interest. The other state interest that Roe asserts is that it, the state has an interest in potential life. The state has an interest in your fetus. Where does that interest come from? In Roe, you don't get any explanation for where that interest comes from. It's just there's, a, there's competing interest with the woman's right to an abortion, and the, in the later stages of pregnancy, the state's interest in potential life, that becomes the dominant interest. And it doesn't explain where this interest comes from, but it says it exists. And so we've got, in effect, what you have is, they put it as, well, okay, we've got to balance the rights of the woman with the state's interest in maintaining maternal health and medical standards, and that the state has an interest in potential life. We've got to balance them. But what that really means is you have a tug of war. You have a, and Roe has a tug of war, and this, in effect, is the analysis. I'm putting it in a graph form, but this is the analysis you get of the tug of war. In the first trimester, the woman wins. Her right dominates the other two things. And it's, it's not clear in Roe, but the reasoning, I think, is, look, the state's interest in potential life, it exists from the moment of a pregnancy, but you've got such an undeveloped being that that interest isn't too high. And it grows as the pregnancy grows. And it becomes, and this is what the decision says, it becomes compelling which is a technical term in the law for the, the it in effect can trump rights, um, it becomes compelling in the third trimester. And the interest in medical standards, medical health, that's not pertinent really in the first trimester. So basically, and this is what 
the decision says explicitly, that it, that the first trimester is just a decision between the woman and the doctor. The state enters in the second trimester and has a super strong interest in the third trimester. So that's what Roe, um, that's why there's a three-part analysis in terms of the right to abortion and when a woman can exercise it and when she can't. And what Casey did then is Casey weakens this and then Dobbs throws it out. So Casey weakened it and said, well, look, we're not going to have an analysis into three trimesters. You treat the state's interest in potential life, that is you, the Roe majority decision, you treat the state's interest in potential life too lightly. You say at the early stage of pregnancy, the state doesn't have an interest in your fetus. But it does, Casey says. So its analysis becomes a two-part analysis, pre-viability and post-viability. Pre-viability, yes, the state interest in potential life, it's there. It's pretty significant. It's not compelling. Um, so is this, its interest in maintaining proper medical standards and the woman's health. But the woman's right to abortion is the dominant one in pre, uh, this, what they call pre-viability and the issue of how they draw the line at viability and what that actually means, I'm going to leave aside. It, there are complications with that, and this is part of the reason that Casey is attacked, and it's part of what happens in Dobbs in the attack. But then it's once you get to viability, the state's interest, both in maternal health and in potential life, becomes really significant, and you can, pro, even to this extent, to prohibiting abortion as long as there's exceptions for the life or the health of the mother. So that's then what you get in Casey. I'm not going to spend much time on Casey. It's a transition between Roe and Dobbs, but it's a weakening. And then what the, what the meaning of the Dobbs decision is, is that the state's interest in your fetus dominates from the moment of conception. And yes, there's also a state interest in maternal health, though it, the decision does not talk very much about that and the woman's right to abortion disappears. It's gone. It has no constitutional protection. And so how does Dobbs attack the Roe decision? And here we have to go back to the issue of privacy. So why did Roe ground abortion rights in a right to personal liberty, in a right to personal privacy? And I am put a stress on personal liberty, personal privacy. Why is it focused on that? And the, the fundamental answer is that the decision, as with many um, modern Supreme Court decisions, is haunted by the ghost of Lochner. So Lochner was a 1905 uh, Supreme Court decision. It was a good decision that was overturned in 1937. Is pretty much when they, they dated as being, it's being overturned. The Lochner decision was about, uh, I mean, the, the, the case was about a baker in upstate New York who uh, was, uh, was claiming that New York state laws that restricted the amount of hours someone could work were unconstitutional. They were an interference with freedom of trade, freedom of contract. And he won the decision. He won the decision that, yes, the, what liberty means and what liberty protected by the Constitution means 
It includes things like freedom of trade and the right to freedom of contract. But the Lochner decision has a dissent. It has a brief, short dissent from Justice Holmes. And his dissent says, look, the paraphrasing, the court is making this up. There, you cannot find a right to freedom of contract in the Constitution. The judges are injecting their view of what the relationship between the state and the individual, between the government and the individual, what they think it should be. But that's not for them to decide. The Constitution is neutral about the relationship of the individual to the state. It's neutral on that. It has no viewpoint about what liberty is, what state power is. It doesn't really, in the end, the meaning of it is there's no restrictions on the state's power. That's his dissent, which comes in the New Deal era when they want to pass all kinds of legislation and laws that do restrict, if not eliminate, freedom of contract, freedom of trade, freedom to set your wage or working hours. To overrule that, they have to say there is no right to freedom of contract protected by the Constitution. That's what they do. And so everyone now thinks the Lochner decision, the judges were wrong, for the re basically for the reason Holmes said, and that Holmes' dissent was correct. And now it's treated as it's obviously correct. And the Lochner decision is obviously wrong. And that overturning of Lochner and putting it, so it, it, in media coverage, you've seen likely people saying that this is the first time the Supreme Court has ever taken rights away from people. That is not true. That is what the Lochner decision and the overturning of it represented. You took away the right to freedom of trade, to freedom of contract from individuals who previously had it and had constitutional, at least some constitutional protection for it. So that was the Supreme Court's in the modern the 20th century. It's, that was its gutting of rights. So basically, the way that you can look at it, and this is, I think, the way they are looking at it, and this is why you get a focus then on personal liberty and on privacy. It's the moment you walk out your front door, you lose your rights. The moment you walk out the front door into the social and economic arena, you lose your rights. So do you have freedom of trade? Do you have freedom of contract? Their answer, once Lochner is overturned, is no, you do not have these rights. The state gets to control social and economic life. And that's what they were doing in the New Deal era and then post the New Deal era. So the moment you walk out your front door, you lose your rights. But maybe if you stay behind closed doors, you can keep your rights. And so what they start doing is trying to carve out a realm of personal liberty or personal privacy that, oh yeah, here you still enjoy rights and you have protection from state control and state power. But the moment then you go outside of your house into the world, you lose those rights. And so you get things and you get decisions in the 60s, and, and Roe is referring to some of these, that protect the use of contraceptives to read obscene materials. But in Roe, it's put like, to read obscene materials in your bedroom. In a public park, who knows? 
<clears throat> um, things about sex and marriage, and so you get these that they're starting to think, well, isn't this part of liberty and we want to protect this and doesn't the Constitution protect this? But we can't make any grand claims about liberty because then it would be, we would be encroaching on economic and social areas. So they're trying to carve out this realm of personal liberty or personal privacy. But you can't read the Constitution and think it's carving out some realm, well, yeah, you've got liberty if you're at home behind closed doors, but you, you lose it when you step outside. I mean, the Constitution doesn't say anything like that. So there does seem to be something artificial about what they're doing and the way they're analyzing it. And this is what then the decision, Dobbs' decision, focuses on and in, I mean, really ridicules and discards. So the main weaknesses of Roe that are exploited by the Dobbs decision is this, what I was just talking about. It has no principled account of liberty. It's trying to carve out some realm of the, in the private that you enjoy rights, you enjoy freedoms, you enjoy protection from state interference and state control. And then the, the Roe decision asserts that a state has an interest in a woman's fetus. It has an interest in potential life it gives no argument or justification for that interest. It just asserts it or assumes it. And the Dobbs decision, in effect, what it does is says, yeah, the second point, that is obviously true. We don't need to argue for this. We don't need to discuss it. Of course, the state has an interest in potential life. Of course, it has an interest in the fetus. And there is no right to abortion. And that is really what the decision means in the end. So all that matters is the state, because the woman doesn't have a right to abortion. So now let me then turn to the Dobbs majority opinion. It, what it says is, so how is it going to argue this? As I say, it's just, just as Roe took for granted that the state has an interest in potential life, it takes that for granted. How is it going to argue that there is no right to abortion, and that Roe was wrong, and they don't even say Roe was wrong. This is from the, the um, opinion. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. And if you ask why, this is what they say, and then this is what will be argued. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. Any constitutional provision. And they say, well, how do we establish this? Well, you have to start with the text, which is true. You have to start with the text of the Constitution. And this is their start, the start of the analysis. Well, there's no mention of abortion or privacy in the, in the Constitution, which is true. Then it says, well, the right to privacy that Roe was asserting supposedly springs from, quote, from no fewer than five different constitutional provisions. And then it says, which is right, that Roe said where this comes from, where a right to privacy, personal liberty, and abortion comes from, is the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment's due process clause. And so that is then what they will focus on. This, the second of these three points is not important, really, for the, for the argument, but it is important for getting the mentality that you're dealing with. So, as I said, privacy is linked to uh, personal liberty 
and to liberty in the 14th Amendment in the Roe decision. Their view, and take, it's from no fewer than five different provisions. It's like five different provisions in the US Constitution could be relevant to the issue of liberty? Five? Okay, maybe two clauses in the Constitution could be relevant to liberty, but five? That's crazy. And that tells you something about the mentality that you're dealing with, and it's all over this decision. This is, I mean, it's almost generous to put it, this is a concrete-bound mentality, um, that liberty is a principle, it's a right and abstraction. The whole Constitution has to do with liberty. The idea that it's, oh, you, have, you appeal to five different clauses, you're overwhelming me, is that, but that, that is what their attitude is, and that is a concrete-bound attitude. But they say, okay, what Roe says is that what we're referencing is the liberty that is protected in the 14th Amendment. So the question then becomes, and this is what, how the argument proceeds, what does the principle of liberty or the right to liberty mean? If that's what Roe is appealing to, that's where they say you can understand where personal liberty and a right to privacy, which includes contraception, abortion, so on, that's what it, where it comes from. So what does the right to liberty mean? And so this is what then the majority opinion has to focus on. This is what a majority of the Supreme Court justices have to say on this. Where does the right to liberty come from? What does it mean? Their answer is, who knows? And their answer explicitly is, who knows? Who the hell knows what liberty means? This is how it's put a little more graciously than that. The term liberty alone provides little guidance. Liberty is a capacious term. In a well-known essay, Isaiah Berlin reported that historians of ideas had cataloged more than 200 different senses in which the term is used. Close quote. So the Declaration of Independence should have had an asterisk on liberty. Well, we mean sense 137b. This is their perspective on liberty. So liberty tells us nothing. So th th what they literally are saying, that when they read the Constitution, they get to the preamble, and it's about securing the blessings of liberty, to them, that, like, that's hot air. Oh yeah, that's nice rhetorically, but I have no idea what you're talking about when you say the Constitution is for securing the blessings of liberty. And then the judges warn us, in the majority opinion, that we have two choices. And what are we, which one are we going to take? Choice one is, well, we as judges could inject into the law our subjective preferences. That's what the Lochner judges did. They said there's freedom of contract. That's part of what liberty means. That's injecting their subjective preference into the law. We don't want to do that. What's the alternative? Well, we're going to figure out which subjective preferences our ancestors injected into the law. <clears throat> and that will tell us then what the Constitution means. And they put the first point pretty explicitly, and then this is how they put the second point. But it, my translation is the actual meaning of the second point. 
This is from the decision. On occasion, the court, quote, has fallen into the freewheeling judicial policymaking that characterized discredited decisions such as Lochner v. New York. The court must not fall prey to such an unprincipled approach. Instead, guided by the history and tradition that map the essential component of our nation's concept of ordered liberty, we must ask what the 14th Amendment means by the term liberty. So they don't know what it means, but hopefully the ancestors had some kind of view of what it means, and that's now what we're going to try to figure out. And you would at least expect from this analysis that now what they're going to focus on, at least from a historical perspective or a historical traditional perspective, what does the 14th Amendment mean by liberty? So you would think the next step in their argument is, okay, what does liberty, from a historical, traditional point of view, what does it mean in the 14th Amendment? What does the Constitution securing the blessings of liberty, what does it mean by that? You would think that's the next step. No, that is too abstract a step for them. The whole decision has a myopic focus on abortion. And their view of the history is, well, we can't find any right to abortion in our history or tradition. And their conclusion then is, okay, well, therefore banning abortion doesn't infringe on liberty. And the, the majority decision doesn't bring up the issue of, like it, ha it has, exhibits no awareness of the issue of, like maybe our history and our traditions conflict in some ways with the principle of liberty or the right to liberty. And this is after slavery and the Civil War. They can't get that there would be a question of maybe our history of allowing slavery and of viewing blacks as not people and not citizens. And so like maybe that conflicts with the principle of liberty and the right to liberty and the Declaration of Independence and what the Constitution means by securing the blessings of liberty. Like maybe the history and tradition, there's a conflict here. There's nothing, the decision raises nothing about this. And in particular, the two things that would strike you that you would have to think about if you're going to try to do this historical traditional analysis, you would have to think about do our traditions in history reflect a Christian worldview? Is the reason you can't find a right to abortion that you have so many laws that are influenced and animated by Christianity and Christianity's view, or at least some people's view of what Christian dogma is, that it prohibits abortion or it prohibits abortion after quickening? And the laws have reflected that, and our history and tradition in part reflects that, and what the Declaration of Independence as a declaration of principles, of rights as principles, is rejecting that. There's no discussion, let alone grappling, with that question. And then if you ask the, the even more obvious question, like maybe our history and traditions don't reflect a right to abortion because we have treated women as second-class citizens. Like if they can't have property in the vote, why is anybody going to be talking about a right to abortion? as though they have that kind of control over their lives. There's nothing in the majority opinion that addresses that. The, they only deign to address it because the dissent rightly and forcefully brings this issue up 
that, yeah, well, maybe you can't find this in the tradition because of this view of women that exists in the tradition. And then Alito, in, in writing the majority opinion, okay, he adds a section. So this is the major addition from the draft that was leaked to what we have now. He addresses this. I mean, he addresses this. Uh, and he says a few things about it which are totally unconvincing. And that's, that's the end of it. And if you're just thinking of this in terms of our, uh, the, what are called the cultural wars going on in the US right now, there is no better way to discredit the Constitution than what this uh, majority opinion does. In effect, it reinforces the idea that the Constitution is written by dead white Christian males for dead white Christian males. That's the prejudices that have been injected into our history and tradition. That's what liberty means. That's what our rights are. That's what the Constitution protects. And if you have then people on the side that we would put as the woke, who say, well, the hell with the Constitution then. Don't think that they don't have an argument about this. If the other side is telling them, like, this is how to look at the Constitution, this is how to interpret it, this is what its meaning is, I can understand the reaction of, to hell with it then. And this is the essence. I mean, there's more in the majority opinion, but this is the essence of its opinion, and it's the quality of the reasoning and the quality of the analysis. I mean, in a, in a sentence, Dobbs is egregiously wrong from the start. It's wrong in its reasoning, and it's wrong in its conclusion. Now, the decision is, I think, it's vulnerable in some ways. So, and, it, and basically, of things that I brought up that are not discussed in the decision. It's vulnerable on First Amendment grounds. It's vulnerable on the issue of, like, doesn't this decision, and doesn't this perspective, and doesn't this method of analysis lead to the idea that, okay, what we're saying rights are, are things that have already injected religion into their content. So if it's, if it's correct to read the First Amendment as separating church and state, and it is correct to read the First Amendment as separating church and state, there's an argument to be made that what this decision and its reasoning amount to is an establishment of religion. And the, there are already cases that are, at least at the state level of, of, of challenging state abortion laws, where it's, the, there's, and it's some, sometimes it's other religious uh, figures. So I think there's a rabbi, for instance, in Florida who's challenging Florida's uh, anti-abortion laws on the, from the perspective that this is a Christian perspective on abortion. We don't share it, and this is an interference with our free exercise of religion to prohibit us from um, being able to end uh, embryo or a fetus because there are some Christians who might object to it. So there are, I don't know the likelihood of success of those arguments, but there's that kind of argument. And then there's certainly an argument, but it's harder to make, I think, on equal protection grounds. It's harder to make because it has to focus on the reasoning of the decision. That the reasoning and the whole methodology of the decision 
ends up treating women as second-class citizens. And if you take equal protection of the law seriously, that vacates equal protection of the law. So it's, it's, those are at least two of its vulnerabilities. I mean, it's more vulnerable, but you'll, I won't get that argument. You certainly won't get it successful when you have an originalist uh, Supreme Court, who, I mean, the majority of the judges who think the method of analysis is this kind of um, focus on the text and concrete bound focus on history and traditions. Challenging that, they're going to say, well, look, they'll trot out their other alternative. The alternative is we, we inject our subjective preferences today of what we think liberty is. So that argument with the current composition of the court, I think, will go nowhere. And then somebody should raise the issue of where the state's interest in the fetus, in potential life, comes from. It's asserted. It's asserted, as I said, in Roe. It's never justified. And one of the shocking things, or one of the startling things, if you read Roe, Casey, and Dobbs, is there is almost no discussion of the state's interest in potential life. There's, it comes up head-on only once in Casey in a partial concurrence and a partial dissent from Justice Stevens. And he, and he rightly says, okay, so it's asserted that there's a state interest in potential life, but what is this interest and where does it come from? And he rightly says, like, the states never actually, they say they have this interest, but they never justify it. What is the justification for it? This is what he gives. And this is pretty close, it's not, quote, these are not quotes, but this is pretty literal. Some people find abortion offensive, and the state wants to minimize offense. So it controls, regulates, even prohibits abortion. The state might too want to expand the population. So you become a baby factory because the state wants a larger population. And then the state might want some outstanding individuals. They want, might want another Mozart. And it doesn't happen that often, so the more babies you have, the higher chance. <laughs> but this isn't a Supreme Court decision about the power that the state has. And if it has this kind of power over an individual, it has unlimited power over the individual. And there's only, I mean, from the way the current court will look at it, the only thing that reigns in that power are the first eight amendments in the Bill of Rights. And a traditional historical interpretation of those eight uh, amendments in the Bill of Rights. So this is ripe for challenge, that what is the state interest? But unfortunately, there is now a reply to that, or there would be a reply to that. And this is, in terms of thinking of the dismantling of Roe, I think, unfortunately, we're in stage one, or we're at step one. And this Supreme Court and all the activists that have been, I mean, as many people said, they've been playing a long game. They've been trying to uh, abolish the right to abortion for basically since Roe, a little before that, but certainly they're animated uh, and they gain political favor 
after Roe and with Reagan inviting in uh, the, the, as Ayn Rand put them, the mili militant mystics, inviting them into the Republican Party. They have a reply to this, and this is, in terms of thinking of the dismantling of Roe, this is the ominous um, thing, that it, we're not at the low point, I think. It's, so we're at the beginning of the war, not at its end. Step one is to declare that a woman has no right to abortion. That is what Dobbs does. Step two is to declare that the fetus does have a right to life. So step one is Dobbs. Step two is the fetus has a right to life. And the, if you read the Dobbs majority decision, and if you know how to read it, but it's, it's, they telegraph this, that what they don't address at all in Roe is Roe's claim that a person, um, a fetus is not a person, and therefore not entitled to rights under the U.S. form of government, under the U.S. Constitution. They don't touch that. They don't say anything about that. They attack the dissent in saying that the dissent does not take seriously that the state has an interest in the woman's fetus. Now that's, it's, I mean, it's an outright lie of, of what the majority opinion says. The dissent goes out of its way to say, of course the state has a great, I, I think it's exceedingly strong or something like that, that is the language, exceedingly strong interest in the fetus of a woman, in potential life. Like it goes, you can't possibly read the dissent and say what Alito says, that, oh, they don't give any um, significance to the state's interest in potential life. But what he does go on in, to say, and what the majority opinion says, it doesn't recognize that the fetus has a right to life. And there's a few other places in the majority decision where they're inviting cases that will bring, okay, we know the woman doesn't have a right to abortion, but doesn't the fetus have a right to life? And if you get that, if you get cases taken to the court, and it's, it's not clear to me the, this was a 6-3 decision, that you'll get six judges who would say, yes, if, we, if you go back and you try to trace our history and traditions, you can derive a right to life for the fetus. I'm not sure you'll get six, I'm not even sure you'll get five, but it's pretty close. And this is the second step in terms of what dismantling Roe. It's one, to strip the woman of her rights, and then two, to enshrine the fetus with rights. And if you get that, um, that will be not just, so, so the, this idea that, that what's going on is we just want to leave it to the states, that, that's a smokescreen. That it would be bad enough if that was the position, but that's not what is going on. What they want is to strip the woman of her rights and to elevate the fetus as this has rights. And then it will be, so if you ask, what's the state's interest in potential life? Well, this potential life has rights. So of course the state has an interest. It has a credible interest in protecting and securing this and so on. And then that will be that at the state level, you have to have laws that are prohibiting abortions on, because the fetus has rights. Um, and this is the, uh, I, I think in terms of the, the end game of dismantling Roe, 
It's step two is the further step and the step that they're awaiting. And part of what is ominous about this is that the objectivist philosophy has a lot to say about why both of these claims are false. It's false to think that a woman doesn't have a right to abortion. It's false to think that that is not an aspect and a crucial fundamental aspect of liberty. And it's false that the fetus has rights. But how many other people in the culture understand and are sort of in the intellectual debate and fight, how many other people understand either of these? And the, the, the anti-abortionists, they have a real program, and it's true that this is a strategy crafted for decades, not for a year, and not for sound bites and so on. And this is what is going on. So in terms of the, if the, the subject is dismantling of Roe, my view of what is, Roe has been overturned, but it's the dismantling of it is we're at step one. There's a second step to come. What it will take to get cases and judgments in regard to this is a, is a different issue, but that's where we are, uh, unfortunately. Okay, so this is not the most inspiring of a, for a first talk at a, at a conference, but unfortunately, that, I think this, it reflects the reality of where we are. So let me close here and open it up for questions. And Ben, you're going to join, yeah, Ben, my colleague Ben Baer uh, is going to join me for questions. Do you have a mic? Oh. And we have, there's just one mic, I think, so the, the mic's at the center of the room. Too. And I cannot see much, but it, I think that's Evan, yeah. Yep. Is this working? Good. Can we, can we put the oh, yeah. image of the book up on screen? Yeah, but why don't you say a few words about that before we... Right. I don't know if we have... I sent you all an image. Well, anyway, many of you have probably already seen that uh, there's a book we put together, Why the Right to Abortion is Sacrosanct, based on uh, previously published articles that I wrote for ARI's journal, New Ideal Live. I'm sure we've got a stack of copies back in uh, Tendi Services. And it's a short book, uh, I think pretty accessible, uh, giving me the, the key arguments for the points that Ankar was just referencing at the end of his talk, where objectivism has a lot to say on those two topics, why the woman does have a right to an abortion, why the, why the fetus has no rights. And these are, these are arguments straight out of basic fundamental essential principles of objectivism. As I, I think many of you know, Ayn Rand herself was a vocal supporter of abortion rights and a vocal critic of the anti-abortion movement because of what she saw its strategy to be, which Ankar has just outlined. And so I see there's a long line of questions, so I'll stop there and we'll start to take them. Yeah, Evan. Yeah, so um, my question um, relates to this question of, of, of like where is the court going? What's their ultimate objective? You've mentioned that they may find that the fetus has a right to life. But in terms of contraception, do you have a view about where they're ultimately going to go? Do you think the court by itself, without Congress, would attempt to outlaw contraception in some way? Is that possible? I don't think that that's what is going on. So many people have read Thomas's um, concurrence 
as his target is to get rid of contraception or that there's some right protected by the Constitution for contraception, interracial marriage, and things like that. I don't think that that is what is going on. He wants to get rid of what's called substantive due process, um, and which he calls an oxymoron, and for not, I mean, there's a logic to his position, which is due process refers to process. It doesn't refer to the substance. But if you read the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and if you don't read it in the way modern judges read it, that I have to read each clause in isolation from the other clauses, I can't even focus on a whole sentence. That's too overwhelming. It overwhelms the crow. Um, that it's the, the, the 14th Amendment, it's, there's a clause about, which is called now the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which was a way in the 19th century of referring to rights. And then it talks about due process, and then it talks about equal protection of the laws. If you think of it as an integrated total, it's you have rights, which have to, if you're ever going to lose them, have to be through a legitimate government process. So yes, if you murder someone, you can be put in jail, but it has to be a process, and it can't be that you've got just arbitrary assertions and that's counted as evidence. So it has to be a process, and it has to be applied equally across all the citizens. So if you read it as a total, which is how you should read the 14th Amendment, it has substance in it. And I think Thomas's view is, yeah, it does have substance in it, but it has substance through the Privileges or Immunities Clause, not through the due process. So he wants to get rid of the, the basis for the decisions. Whether that means he wants to get rid of all the things that have been protected, or he would find that they would protect it through the Privileges or Immunities Clause, I think, at least for some of them, it's the latter that he thinks they're protected. And I think, I don't, I don't know what you think, but it's they're animated by the issue of, of abortion. So the, the majority opinion just keeps asserting that, no, of course this doesn't reflect, uh, have any effect, any implications for these other rights, because what we're dealing with is some unique thing, which is abortion. And to them, the reason it's unique is because it involves a fetus, and a fetus to them is sacred. And so it has a unique, it's, and that's, so they, whether they really want to target these other things, I think the answer is no. The logic of the position is it might be. Well, I, I agree with you that they are really animated by the issue of abortion, but the way that they actually state it in the majority opinion is what makes abortion unique is that it ends a potential life. And if you take them seriously about that, I don't see why they, the logic of their position wouldn't equally rule out the Gonzalez decision about the right to contraception yeah, because it does stop, uh, it does prevent the, the, <laughs> the creation of, of, of life. And I mean, the Catholic Church has been very consistent on this position. They're opposed to contraception for the exact same reason that they're opposed to abortion. And what do we have now, like five justices who are Catholic? Six. So six, so... And this, it comes up in the dissent as well, that it's, yeah, they assert that other rights aren't in jeopardy, but if you think of the logic of the opinion, and if they're going to follow this logic, not cherry-pick, then all kinds of rights are um, in jeopardy. And that is true. Like, if you follow the way that they think about rights, and we have to find them in our history and traditions, then it's not just the contraception and interracial marriage or things. There's all kinds of rights that you would not find with, through that analysis. And the Privileges and Immunities Clause wouldn't 
help defend those any better, even if Thomas is more willing to hear an argument from that clause, you presumably have to interpret that clause using the history and tradition of the laws as well, and you're not going to find anything in the history of traditions that allow for a right to contraception or to interracial marriage, which would be inconvenient for Justice Thomas. Hi. Um, thank you for your talk. So you discussed about how you know, the overturning of the right to abortion is because nothing in the Constitution like really explicitly discusses like you know, actually in the Constitution, like whether it should be legal or not, whether it's a right or not. And I read that Alito said that, like the infamous decision in Plessy versus Ferguson, which is the right uh, discussing the legality of uh, segregation, Roe was also egregiously wrong and on a collision course with the Constitution from the day it was decided. And I wanted to know one thing, which is, could they actually overturn the right to segregation based on the precedent that's set that it doesn't actually firmly discuss the right of like racial equality because that's not firmly discussed in, I guess, in the Constitution either. And another thing is, I'm a political writer from my high school newspaper. And for my first issue ever this year, our discussion was whether the process that the Supreme Court uses is valid or actually moral. Like, so the opposing side was whether we should open it up and make it democratic. And I defended that, I put research into the way that the Supreme Court looks at cases, and I said that the Supreme Court is right in the way that they treat cases, in the way, like, in the process that they take. And I don't know, after, like, the case of Roe v. Wade, I've, I mean, like, not getting attacked, but I am. And I wanted to know what your stances are on that. Well, so the issue with Plessy, the reason this came up in the majority opinion is because Plessy was a was the Supreme Court decision that initially said segregation is justified. It was a case in Louisiana concerning the use of uh, 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 bus lines. And the, uh, that was, the, of course, famously overturned mm -hmm. in Brown v. Board, mm -hmm. Brown v. Board of Education. The, the reason it comes up in the Dobbs decision is there's a, there's a doctrine in the law called stare decisis that says when you have a major precedent that has been on the, uh, in, in jurisprudence for many years and many people have relied on it to plan their lives, that you don't overturn major precedent lightly. So the Dobbs opinion is overturning Roe v. Wade, which has been a precedent for 50 years. And the argument that's been given for, one of the arguments that's been given for why you shouldn't overturn it is because this is a major precedent that's been on the book for many years and many people are relying on it. And so stare decisis should dictate you defer to this precedent, you don't overturn it, at least not very lightly. And so Dobbs is justifying its overturning of major precedent by saying, well, we overturned Plessy in Brown v. Board, mm -hmm. and so you can, you can, you can overturn major precedent if, if you think it was wrong from the beginning. Um, there's a lot to say about this, but the, the one thing that I would stress is that it's not very, I mean, it's a disingenuous example for the, for the court to draw on, because if you look at, the, and this relates, to, I think, to the second part of your question, which is like, what is the method that the court uses to make its decisions, and what is the method it uses to overturn major precedents? Because the method that the court uses in Brown v. Board to overturn Plessy would, is a very different method from what Dobbs is now using. They're not looking at the history and tradition of the laws, because if you look at the tradition uh, that 
uh, of the laws at the time that the 14th Amendment was passed, which is what Brown v. Board is relying on to say Plessy violates equal protection. You, well, you wouldn't look at the laws and say, oh, at the time the 14th Amendment was passed, there, were all, there was equal treatment uh, of people on the basis of their skin color. There weren't even public schools that you could, that you could access. There, so th there was nothing in the history and tradition of the United States at the time that would justify the, at the time of the 14th Amendment, that would justify Brown v. Board. So what the court is doing in Brown v. Board, Brown v. Board is, is they're looking at the, the spirit of the Constitution, the meaning of individual liberty, the meaning of equal protection of the laws. They're taking this general principle and they're applying it to a new case, which is what Roe did. So you don't get to say that Brown was a, was a perfectly justifiable uh, decision to overturn precedent on the basis of a method that this court is now not using. <laughs> and I would ask the court, I know they would have an answer to this, but I would ask them, what would you say about the Dred Scott decision? Yeah. If you're looking at our history and traditions at that point, because that is viewed as like that was obviously wrong. It's not clear it's obviously wrong. It's not clear it's wrong from this, the method that they used. And what is happening, um, so I put it in the talk, that their view philosophically comes down to someone has to inject their subjective preferences into the Constitution or into the law, which means that the law is not a set of principles. And that is a repudiation of the law. If you read it as a set of principles, and it has to be a set of principles, if it is to govern both citizens at the time and into the future, it's a set of principles that are general um, statements about what is, well, in terms of rights, where, what your rights encompass, in terms of state power, of where the state power extends to. And if you think of them as terms of principles, when they're enacted, it is possible and will regularly happen that they don't understand even the full range of the principle and the, all the laws that are downstream from the Constitution that have to be either modified or tossed out because we now, the, the U.S. Constitution was a radical new document and the Declaration of Independence is radically new. So these are new principles. We're reforming government on these principles and anything in our existing traditions and histories that is incompatible with these new principles has to go. And that's what the American form of government is, and that's what the American experiment is. And it's why it's called an American experiment, because we're instituting new foundational principles and are going to reform America on this basis. And so the whole, their whole perspective on tradition and history is profoundly anti-American. Okay, well, thank you. That's Shay? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned in your talk the personal liberty, personal privacy is sort of like whatever goes behind closed doors. There's also, that's a common like cultural sentiment about like evaluating other people, not legally, but like, I don't care what you do behind closed doors, just don't shove it in my face, that sort of thing. Do you think that comes from any common source or is that just happened, like coincidental that, that that same kind of thing is operative in the legal interpretation as well as you know, 
live and let live kind of attitude? Yeah, it has a common source, which is this liberal mentality that, and in particular if you're thinking at the time of Roe and in the 60s, that it is, yeah, we're not against freedom as such, we're not against liberty as such. Yeah, we want to take every, away everyone's economic liberty, we want a whole new welfare state, um, we want the great society programs of Johnson and so that, so, but it's, oh yeah, we're not telling you in your private life what to do and so and that, like, that's a common that you see both reflected in the law and reflected in societal attitudes. So it has, it's, a, it's a common way of trying to get out of the implications of what the position actually is. And it's part of what it's emptying liberty as a principle. There is no such principle that it's, oh yeah, freedom is important when you're in your bedroom, but when you're running a business, who needs it? <laughs> Uh, I guess you probably answered Ankar the question uh, now. My question was: Roe, you said Roe grounded abortion right in right to personal liberty, and and you underlined it personal privacy. So my question was: Why did you underline it? What is so philosophically, uh, legally important to to really add it? Why wouldn't personal liberty suffice? So did you answer it now, or do you have something more to say? Yeah. So. To underline the privacy is to, I put it as when you um, walk out of your front door, you forfeit your rights, you lose your rights. There's a way in which you can read Roe that it's even worse than that. It's once you start interacting with other people, then you lose your rights. And this would throw into jeopardy interracial marriage and so on. And the the, the formulation in the Roe majority opinion is, a woman is not isolated in her privacy. And that, that, that's the perspective that freedom, yeah, you can have it on a desert island when nobody's around. And so Once some people are around, it's like, how do you function? And, so, and rights have nothing to do with that, which the, I mean, the whole perspective is that why, is why you need the principle of rights. But there's that kind of perspective in Roe that is even worse than closed doors. And, so, and it's, it links to that they think there's a state interest in the fetus. And even though the fetus is not a person, we're still interested in it. You can't isolate a woman in her privacy because there's a fetus there, and, and then rights don't work anymore. And there, there's that, if you take the kind of the most negative interpretation of Roe, I think that is, there's an element of that. Thank you. Um, we have some questions from uh, people who are watching us uh, online, so I will ask two of them, starting with Noel Krager's question. One of the arguments against the right to abortion is that it is not mentioned in the Constitution. That absence, uh, that, uh, absence of mention does not disqualify it from being a right, as the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution says. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, close quote. Uh, and then Nell says, I can understand that some might argue that abortion is murder, so it, wouldn't so it wouldn't qualify its other rights, but that implies that the fetus is a person, which it is not. Could you comment on that? Well, one thing that Ankar mentioned, uh, if we're just speaking about the constitutional issues here, one of the other things that's good about Roe is that it explicitly says 
there's there's nothing in the Constitution about how the fetus is a person. So if you're just if you're just going on the question of what's constitutional here, that's a that's a really good point. And in fact, if you if you read the Fourteenth Amendment, it says all persons born in in the United States uh, are citizens. And and uh, you know it had the chance um, to specify the unborn too, but it didn't. So. <laughs> And there's good, there's, there's good philosophic reasons for that. Um, I mean, I, I suspect perhaps what's, part, uh, what's behind a part of that question is, is how does objectivism, for instance, make the philosophic point that the fetuses are not individuals with rights? And well, there's a lot to say about this. The first thing I would say is pick up a copy of the book because it's explained there, but I'll give you the nutshell, which is that from objectivism's perspective, Individual rights is uh, the fundamental principle of our political philosophy. Individual rights include things like right to free speech, right to freedom of religion, right to freedom of the press. What the essence of all of these rights are is the right of individuals to disagree with each other, to dissociate from each other, to, as Ankar put it, to go their separate ways when they don't agree even though they're living in the same society. That is a perspective that, for which it's very important that you can go your separate ways, that you are individuals who have separate minds living in separate bodies. And that means individual rights apply only to individuals, to people who are individuated physiologically and physically from each other, and that does not apply to the relationship between a mother and a fetus. The fetus is not an individual. That is why it doesn't have individual rights. Let me say something about the Ninth Amendment. So one of the bad things in Roe that I didn't mention is that the district court, whose decision they're then looking at, found a right to personal liberty and privacy in the Ninth Amendment. That was the basis for its decision. And Roe said, the, the majority in Roe said, yeah, you, you could think of it there, but we think of it, it's best located and defended through the 14th Amendment due process clause. And it is not best defended through a due process clause. It would have been much better if uh, the Ninth Amendment is a forgotten amendment, and it would have been really good if you had a major Supreme Court case that is making reference that this Ninth Amendment is important, and it includes a lot of rights that are not specifically mentioned in the Constitution. But with our present court, the Ninth Amendment is hopeless. So liberty is in the Constitution, and they don't know what it means. The idea that they're going to know what unenumerated rights mean, like, that's a fantasy. That they, so for them, it's literally, they read the Ninth Amendment, and I, they, it's, I have no idea what this is talking about. I mean, they read liberty, and they, they tell you. I have, it has 200 different meanings. I have no idea what this refers to. And so this kind of originalist mentality, the idea that the Ninth Amendment is like the preamble to the Constitution, hot air without any legal significance. So Unless you find some guy who told you something about the Ninth Amendment in very concrete bound ways. And then, I mean, you can cherry pick. This is part of what the whole method is subjectivist. The, you can cherry pick through the history and tradition to find what you want, um, but you can't. Like, that, this is not what it means to live under a rule of law. And the idea, just if you think in terms of rule of law, I didn't say this either. 
the idea that as a citizen, you have to go through this historical and traditional analysis to know what any term means. You can't read, you can't read the law and have any idea what, like, what does this allow and what does this prohibit if you have to be a specialist in history and traditions. So another question is from Kelsey Rose. And these are two questions, but they are uh, related. What is missing in the dissent's opposition to the Dobbs uh, ruling? And the second question is, is the dissent's opposition to the Dobbs ruling similarly concrete bound? Well, Ankar and I just did a podcast on this uh, this past Wednesday uh, on the death of abortion rights in America post-mortem. So you look that up on YouTube for more. But we, we did answer that question, and I would say I would say uh, a couple of things. One is that the main thing that it's missing is uh, challenge to the, some of the problems in Roe that Ankar articulated in his talk. So it doesn't challenge the idea that there's this state interest in uh, potential life. It doesn't even challenge, say, by way of proposing an alternative, the viability standard, which is the, the practical application of the idea you have to balance state interest in potential life with state interest in liberty. And there are, you know, the viability standard has been relentlessly criticized for being vague and arbitrary, which I think it basically is. And so if you don't defend the major standard that is invoked to defend Roe, you, you're, you don't have uh, much to defend the decision. And then the second thing, uh, I think the, other, the second question was about does Roe, sorry, does the dissent in Dobbs exhibit the same kind of concrete boundedness as the majority opinion? And I would say n not as much. Uh, one of the things we addressed in the podcast was that there's, a, there's some good material in the dissent about how the founders, by putting down the Constitution as fundamental law, purposefully gave us a set of general principles so that they could be applied to new situations in the future that they themselves might not have been able to foresee. And uh, no, I, don't think that the, I don't think that the justices who wrote this dissent have much of a good idea about how we would apply these general principles today, given all the other contradictions that they've got. But they've at least got the realization uh, that they are general principles and that they're, they have a a foundation and that you can use that foundation to apply them to new cases. Uh, so I, I don't think they had quite the same problem, but they had other problems and they didn't, they didn't do enough to address them. And they're haunted by the fundamental issue here, or what, the way I put it, haunted by the ghost of Lochner. So the dissent is haunted by that in the same way with certain changes that the majority opinion is. So if you, they want to say there's a principle of liberty, but you can't smash the principle, take out economic and social things and say, well, of course, liberty applies, doesn't apply to those things, and, say, and retain a principle. You've broken the principle if you do that. And since they would not dare touch social and econo social in the sense of a welfare state and economic regulations and so on, they will say that there's a principle, but they can't give any content really to that principle. And so the criticism from the originalist side is you're saying anything goes. And there is a legitimacy to that criticism. Um, it, there is a subjectivism 
in the dissent as well. It's a subjective perspective on, well, we don't really like economic freedom, um, so it's not in the Constitution. And on the other side is, we don't like abortion, so it's not in the Constitution. And what this is, why state power is growing, it's in part because they're both animated by what they don't like. And yeah, if liberty on some other way gets jeopardized by that, who cares? Because we want to control the economic realm, and we want to control pregnancy, and we want to control contraception. So that is on both sides what dominates is the state interest. Um, so it, the dissent in ways is forceful, and in ways is in, in the end empty. Thanks for talking about this. Well, it's really hot. Okay, so, uh, and thank you for your book, Ben. I really appreciate you right, you putting it together and everybody who has helped to do that. I recommend buying that. It's only $6 on Amazon. So there you go. Okay, so I don't think, you know, you were talking, Ankar, about step two in terms of establishing that fetuses have rights. I don't think that they're serious about that. I think they're more serious, like you were just saying, that they want to control the actions of women in this particular case because, um, so how does a, because I don't think they can answer that, how does a female fetus have rights uh, when those rights end potentially at menstruation or pregnancy? Um, when they are potentially vulnerable to sexual assault, um, rape, incest, all of that, once they're pregnant, they have rights for, say, nine years, 12 years, 16 years, whatever, however long they live until they are now, you know, their, their pregnancy, their fetus belongs to their state, to the state, and their, their actions are, are no longer valid for what they want in their life. Um, so, when you say they're not serious about they want the fetus to have rights, I think they're deadly serious about that. And if you read the opinion, and if you are trying to project what is going in their mind, why are they using these terms? Why not say something? You could put this point in a different way. Why are you putting it like this? I think they're deadly serious that they think the fetus has rights, at least like three of four of the judges. But six of them signed on to the majority opinion. Now, it's possible one or two of them doesn't really understand the implications of it, right. but I think they're deadly serious. And if you're doing this stupid historical traditional analysis, I can give you a reply to that. Look, they didn't know in the 18th century if, if the fetus was male or female, so it has rights, and then if you find out it's female when it's born, okay, then it has lesser rights. I mean, I can make up an argument that will preserve the rights of the fetus. An additional consideration here is, is to think of what they must actually mean by rights. They don't mean anything like what objectivism means by it. What objectivism means by rights is an inviolable moral principle that an individual has just in virtue of being an individual. It's non-negotiable. It can't be surrendered. It shouldn't be violated by government at any point. One needs it to be able to live as a human being in society. Okay, Their view of rights is something more like really a permission. Mm -hmm. It's a permission granted by the state because the state has some interest, let's say, in your, in your liberty for a time. But it also has an interest in the life of, uh, in potential life. 
And, and when it has that interest, we say, well, then the fetus has a right because the state has an interest in protecting it for whatever kind of statist collectivist reason. And so you can make all these different views of who has rights when consistent on their part, I think, if you understand they don't mean anything by rights like what we do or what the founders did. Thank you. My question is about the distinction between uh, private personal rights and economic rights. Is it really a useful distinction? It appears in the Cato Institute, like Freedom Index, and different countries do differ on it. It's such a stubborn distinction. The uh, socialists say uh, pri private property is not okay, but personal property is okay. They don't want you to have the fruit of your labor. You just want people to have fruits. And uh, in, in fascism, they say, uh, no, the country should dictate uh, what music you hear and everything that in your personal life, but you can hold titles to property. So is it a useful distinction, this private personal liberty and economic liberty at all? It's not a useful distinction if you mean in the sense can you carve up rights like this and say you have got some and not others? No, it's useful in understanding the views that you're facing. So what, what we're seeing here is a playing out of the philosophic attack on rights, which was, it was directed at the right to property. And that's in the 19th century. It's, if we're gonna tear down rights central to it, and this is a point that Ayn Rand insisted on, that you can't have any other rights without property rights. So it was, there was a logic to why that became, if we're gonna undo the Enlightenment achievement, if we're gonna undo the American Revolution, the target is gonna be property rights. And are they gonna say, well, we're against all rights? No, they'll say, well, there's human rights and there's property rights. And this is one kind of formulation that is a more abstract, conceptual formulation than what we're dealing with now and through the law, but this is part, why did, um, why did they feel the need to overturn Lochner? It's, they wanted to abolish property rights. Um, and what, I mean, Lochner, it's not like you get this outstanding defense of property rights. It's that like in some context you have freedom of contract and so on, but that was the target from the 19th century into the 20th century. And so to understand that there's viewpoints that will pretend that there's, okay, well, no, we say there's no property rights, but don't take us as saying there's no right to liberty and so on, because no, there's human rights um, that we are somehow gonna try to carve out. Uh, and you can't carve them out. You can't have freedom of speech without property rights. Like if you can't own anything, if you can't own the uh, printing press, like what is the freedom of a bookseller, of a newspaper and so on? So you can't, so if you're asking, like, is this distinction useful to understand reality, it's useful to understand wrong viewpoints and how they're, what they're doing, how they're working. So, but it's not a valid distinction in terms of what the principle of individual rights is. One, one way to think about this is uh, there's a, a talk that Ayn Rand gave, uh, Censorship Local and Express, where she analyzes the Supreme Court's decision on a, a censorship case in the 1970s. And one of the ways she, she tries to understand the other side's view of rights 
is by saying, if you look at the way decisions have been made and look at the way the political parties align on these decisions, it's as though the conservatives think you should be able to be free in the economic material realm, but not in the spiritual realm. So they want to allow for free trade, but they don't want to allow for uh, free speech. He's analyzing a censorship case. And the liberals are the opposite. They want to allow freedom in the personal uh, spiritual realm, not in the economic realm. And they each want to control the aspect of life that they think is the most important. That, that's where they don't want to allow any liberty. Now, the way those two sides split down, they split down al along the assumption that there is this split between the material and the spiritual, between body and mind. And of course, in Ayn Rand's view, this mind-body dichotomy is a dichotomy. You can't actually, there, there isn't a spiritual realm that's independent of the material realm. Your mind is intimately integrated with your body. And so the freedom of one depends crucially on the freedom of the other. And th that would be one of the deeper reasons why you can't, in reality, separate uh, these two kinds of freedom, even though people think you can because they believe in the mind-body dichotomy. Thank you very much. Thank you for a, I disagree that your talk was not uh, inspiring. I thought it was very thought-provoking, and I thought you all did a great job. And I'm so glad I'm not a professional philosopher. <laughs> um, but I would like, as a physician who has delivered over 100 babies and taken care of women patients who've undergone abortion and so forth, and as somebody who's read the Constitution, and if anyone in the room wants to read the Constitution, it's a quick read, <laughs> very quick. Um, I'm, I'm here to ask, to do two things. One, provide some type of hope for our country because this process of democracy in America is extremely messy. And so there's not black and white on every single Supreme Court decision. The second thing I wanted to ask, or to bring up is, what do you think of the fact that Dr. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, before she passed away, said, or it was written somewhere, I, I, don't, I don't have the right reference, that she thought that Roe versus Wade was going to surface um, and be a problem from the constitutional standpoint. I know that she, at least I've seen quotations attributed to her uh, suggesting she thought there were problems with Roe. I don't myself know what the problems were that she thought there were. Uh, We've talked about some of our own. Maybe she had some of those in mind. But from what I've seen, I haven't read the full talk. I've read some stories on one of the talks she gave about this. It's, it's more, it's a perspective on the political arena rather than if Roe was correctly decided or not. She thought Roe could be unraveled because it was too fast and too soon, and she wanted, and she was, as, as a lawyer, and she went to the Supreme Court often, she was trying to get abortion through the Equal Protection Clause, not through due process. And so she did not think that this was the right way to do it. But that's not the same as saying that Rose incorrectly decided. She thought it, like this was playing out at the state level, and if we got it through the Equal Protection Clause, which more people seem to be on board with, it would have more permanence. 
But that's looking at it from like the court changes, the composition of the court changes, of knowing then that you get a party that is crusadingly anti-abortion, so and trying to get that in. But that's not like that's not what rule of law is. That is just a political, and you have to think about that. But that's a different perspective than it's incorrectly decided from a legal perspective. Thank you. Very helpful. Thanks. I think we're out of time. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.